Welcome, dear readers. You are listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We are coming to you from our attic writing desk, better known as the Carol Shields Auditorium, which is located on the grounds of the old antique shop we know as the Millennium Library. We are, of course, located on Treaty 1 territory and on land that is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. In this episode, we will discuss Great House by Nicole Krauss. If there's a book you think we should discuss in the future, let us know at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca. Like a fading memory, I am, for the last time, Alan Chorney, branch head of the Transcona Library, and to my right is... Hi, my name's Kirsten, and I'm the librarian at Great Library, Harvey Smith. Hi, I'm uh, Trevor, I'm the branch head at the Louis Riel Library, and my desk just has four drawers, none of them lock. <laughs> to my right is... I am Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I have nothing clever to say about myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Erica Ball. I'm the overly introspective branch head at Fort Gary Library. A good book can carry me away from an ever-engine ordinary day, yeah. So keep it down, leave me alone, close the doors and turn off the phone. And you, dear readers, we couldn't do this without you. It's your questions and comments that form the heart of our discussion, so make us laugh or make us cry by emailing us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca or leave a comment on our website, wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. Find out if your comments made it on the air by subscribing to Time to Read on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, or other fine podcasting services. In a moment, Kirsten will start us off by giving us a brief bio of Nicole Krauss, followed by Erica, who will spoil everything with a brief synopsis. Then it is on to the discussion, which you can get in on by emailing us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca or finding us on Facebook. Don't forget to stick around to the end for a special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Kirsten, over to you. Nicole Krauss. She's an American author, writer of novels, short stories, and poetry. She grew up in New York and spent a lot of her life in Israel. She lost great-grandparents, great-aunts, and great-uncles in the Holocaust, and has said that what interests her is the response to catastrophic loss, and wonders if there is something inherited in the blood, a sense of loss of that thing, that place, and a longing for it. She became serious about writing at age 14 when she wrote and published poetry. She graduated Stanford, and then in 1996, she attended the Court Ald Institute in London, where she received a master's in art history, specializing in 17th century Dutch art, with a thesis on Rembrandt. She has been described as having a very architectural approach to writing, keying pieces together and seeing where the joints fit. She says she starts writing without any idea where her story's going. And about her writing, she says, I think everything I write, strange to say this, but I feel hopeful about all the potential. I feel hopeful about the magnitude of life and all we're given to feel. I'm not shy about touching and talking about how painful it is, but I have this hope that somehow, in dwelling in all that, there's this opportunity for some kind of enhancement. And that's Nicole Krauss, author of Great House. Uh, so this is adapted from the book jacket blurb. 
I can't wait to hear this. Uh, You're going to fit all the pieces synopsis. together, right? Yeah. It's super it's, logical. It's it can become follow. clear for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Just lay it on us. Okay. No, no pressure. <laughs> it's not going to do any of that. Um, okay. A reclusive American novelist, a young Chilean poet who disappears. In the suburbs of London, a man caring for his dying wife discovers among her papers a lock of hair that unravels a terrible secret. In Jerusalem, an antiques dealer slowly reassembles his father's study, plundered by the Nazis in Budapest in 1944. Connecting these stories is an odd desk of many drawers. As the narrators of Great House make their confessions, the desk takes on more and more meaning, and finally comes to stand for all that has been stolen from them, and all that binds them to what has disappeared. Great House is a story haunted by questions. How do we respond to disappearance, destruction, and change? How are we affected by the physical environment we create or that is created for us? And how these associations we have with inanimate objects, when tied up with our internal stories, become symbols of past trauma or joy? Ooh, that's good. <laughs> it would have been a hard one. I should have read, read the book jacket. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, see, that's my uh, oh, yeah. heavily edited book jacket. Mm -hmm. there's, there's all sorts of squiggles and lines and... And yeah. for those of you Edits. who can't see what Eric is talking about, because yeah. we're on a podcast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think that's the only way you could probably provide a plot summary of this book is... High-level plot summary. High-level of mm -hmm. what the themes possibly are. I mean... Mm -hmm. I, I definitely drew a tree of connections for this. And I have a chart. <laughs> well, I think the reason why it was maybe, well, for me at least, it was so confusing was because the characters whose perspectives you got weren't the main players in the story. They were tangential players to the story. So it's it's actually like so-and-so's boyfriend sister who is the player that we meet in the other story instead of who you would normally be reading about. And you don't even get their names. Sometimes you don't no. even know yeah. their names. Or Until get, right at the very, very end. Yeah, you yeah. get like yeah. a, a nickname or something. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and the fact that they're telling these stories, it's like... There's no forward motion in the story. So you're, you're, it's like you've almost sat down next to somebody on a really long bus ride and this person wants to tell you their story mm -hmm. and you just want to give them all the symbols like, no, I'm just gonna put my uh, headphones on. I'm gonna, <laughs> like, no, no, they're gonna, they're gonna talk about their feelings and they're gonna just keep talking about it. And, and then they <laughs> and take a little break. And their difficult feelings. Yeah. And they're, and there's and they're a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. And they're complex. And the characters aren't entirely likable at first mm -hmm. either and i think that's why she spends so much time kind of having them tell their story or have their story told because you really get to know these characters yeah. and so you sort of come to understand why they're why they come across so, so harsh yeah, so yeah, yeah 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 i always take notes when i'm reading and uh, i just have so many notes and like circles of like names and mm. underlying of desk whenever the desk came up but it That's didn't come idea. up all the time yeah yeah well it's interesting in in the synopsis that erica was talking about how the desk gains more and more meaning and i kind of like i knew the desk was important because i've been told the desk was important and i was like eh, is it really that important to, to any of this like i know everything's supposed to hinge on the desk but i don't know that nicole kraus actually pulled that off i don't know how everyone else felt about the she desk. intended the desk to be the central thing and maybe maybe that was something that was pulled out as a marketing focus yeah because it is such a hard book to describe and yeah. so you have to have something sort of concrete because there's I, other furniture and other themes like paintings and music yeah. that occur probably more reliably than the mm -hmm. desk. 
And, and, and obviously for me, it was my, my take on it was that it was maybe the author's intention to have the desk seem to mean something. And then it means nothing at all because part of the thing that keeps came, coming back for me for all the characters was that they're, we're trying to find connections. We're trying to find patterns in the mm -hmm. chaos and we're trying to attribute meaning to things that don't really have meaning. And it, it, even Vice at the end, the, um, the antiques dealer mm -hmm. was saying that I will, I'll find this piece of furniture for the person. And mm -hmm. there'll be a moment when that person realizes, Oh no, it's not the actual piece. Mm -hmm. And then that, they get over that because they have to make this piece make sense. And so it's like at the end, the desk, there's the locked drawer and mm -hmm. I like to solve mysteries. I'm like, what's in that drawer? <laughs> you know what? Spoilers. There's nothing in the drawer. <laughs> it's empty. It's locked when he was like a kid. And I was like, Oh, what? And when I, I was reading um, some interviews with uh, Nicole Kraus, and like I said, in the bio, she doesn't really know where the story's going as she's writing it. And she's, supposedly didn't know what was going to be in that drawer until the very end as well. So she, along with the reader, is sort of figuring all this out and like finding this out. It's sort of like dream making then. Like, it sounds like the way she writes, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's her. And, and that maybe that's why it comes across as so incredibly introspective is because, I mean, in dreams, often when you dream about a house or a building, you're dreaming about your own, mm -hmm. yourself. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. if she's like, if she's writing about these themes, then she's, she's following her own levels of association kind of in a, you could almost say like a psychoanalytic way. If that's, if that's what, uh, well, and dreams figure thinks. really prominently yeah. in this book. Like everybody has these amazing dreams that they remember in such detail. Mm -hmm. And then remember who was it who was really sort of obsessed with going to Freud's oh, uh, museum um, right, or Freud's that was, house? Um, was, was it that Isabel? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the girlfriend of the... The girlfriend, girlfriend of, of Yoav? Of Yoav, Yoav yeah. 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 I believe. Yeah. Let me just check my chart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Her, her name was Izzy. Yeah. Izzy, yeah. That's right. She would go and visit the... Because did Freud story. have something? Oh, no, that was Jung who had something to do Freud? with dreams, right? Uh, Freud well, also sure. had yeah. dreams. Okay. Dream. Okay. Yeah. The interpretation so, of dreams, yeah. So that may be... Yeah. And wasn't it a dream that sort of set the whole thing in motion? Like in the very first section, Nadia's friend had the dream... Mm -hmm. uh, that then made him think of Daniel Varsky mm -hmm. uh, and then put her in contact with him because he, she, uh, he knew that he was moving right. or going back to Chile. And and so there was, you know, there's yeah. another example of how yeah. dreams play into the story. So I also did read that actually this book started off as a short story hmm. um, about Nadia's story. Oh, the, first, the first chapter. About the first mm -hmm. chapter. And it was um, called From the Desk of Daniel Varsky. And it was published in The New Yorker, I think. So, and I think then just obviously. Snowballed she there. wanted to take it from there and see where it would go. Right. And it became Sisterhood of the Traveling Death. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things you said, Trevor, was that uh, way back in the first chapter, uh, such and such happened. And I, I'm kind of curious to know how everyone read this book, because I, I found that I, I couldn't really read it for very long at a time, like maybe like 20 minutes, 25 mm -hmm. minutes. And then I was like, mm, I've, I think I've had enough and I, I need to put it down. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if anyone like tore through it. I had the opposite because I started reading it. Um, just in bits and pieces. And I found it, then I was just like forgetting and I had to go back over my notes about who was who and where they were. And and then this last weekend, I actually just sat and read like for a whole day. 
didn't I read that it was like National Stay in Bed and Read Day or something made up like that? Anyway, <laughs> I, I did it. That's, it. that's every day. And, um, and yeah, and, uh, and then I, I was just sort of immersed in it. And I, I liked it that way. Did you like the book as a, as a whole? I did. I, I, it's yeah. okay. I know, <laughs> like, like I know, around, I'm looking like, around. Maybe, yeah. maybe everyone disagrees with me. I, I did, and especially, um, you know, just already hearing <laughs> some of the stuff that we're talking about. And um, I, I do love, like, it's like when I, I love art history, when there's, you know, all these, like, symbols in a piece of art that you're trying to sort of pull together and make some sense of it. I, that's how I sort of feel I, what I was doing when I was reading this book as well. You're, you're asking, Ellen, how we all read it. And for me, once a section was done, and then I read another section, and then I picked up that first section story, I had to go back, like you, Kirsten, and actually read that whole first section again, because I had forgotten. So I think I've actually, if I was to actually say how much of this book I've read, I've, I think I've read it three times, <laughs> because I've read each section twice. And then, yeah. like uh, Kirsten, just a couple of days ago, I kind of did a once through all the way through just to see how it all came together. And uh no, I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, these kinds of books uh, sometimes work for me. Like when there's different characters and different stories and the, it jumps without telling you mm -hmm. who the character is. Some, on a very rare occasion, I, I enjoy that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, di I didn't enjoy it. But there's, there's no doubt that Nicole Krause is a talented writer. There's so many little moments in there that are beautiful. Yeah. So many quotations that I sort of highlighted. Uh, but as a whole, I, I was kind of unsatisfied. But I think maybe that was my been the point that mm. that this is we're like as I mentioned before, it's it's ambiguous. It, mm. it it approaches the story different ways, just like the great house of the of the Hebrew teachings mm -hmm. became once Israel or once Jerusalem fell. Uh, they were talking about that at the end, and this new the thing that became the Talmud. Uh, it's called the great house because it's all like just fragments of people's thoughts and feelings and ideas brought together. And that's kind of what this book is, but no, I didn't yeah. like it. But that's just me. <laughs> I mean, I mean yeah, yeah I, I, I understand a lot of that. I think that it's a brilliant book. I think that I'm not in a place where I can appreciate it. Mm. Um, right now I'm in a place where I'm reading for pleasure and this was a very difficult. And like Alan was saying, I could read a little bit of time and then it just became too much. And there was too many uh, metaphors and analogies and stuff like that going on for me to be able to just kind of sink into it. So I would put it down and, and pick it up. And then actually, I didn't I didn't finish this one, but mostly because I got distracted and accidentally read a different book. <laughs> That's what happens sometimes <laughs> when I'm I supposed to be reading. I tripped and fell and read a different book. <laughs> it, just, it just happens. That's called self-care. So <laughs> I think so. I think this, uh, this is when I'm going to try again. And when when I'm when I'm in a place where I can more rigorous, rigorously apply my brain to a book because yeah january is hard mm -hmm. for books about people who have had horrible things happen to them so i'm actually glad that we were reading it for the podcast because i did then i don't normally take notes when i'm reading a book mm -hmm. and so then i think i was reading it far deeper and there was a lot of stuff in there that really spoke to me oh her writing right is gorgeous yeah. it like really the way is she put sentences yeah. and ideas together is amazing yeah, and, so, and and sort of like the best kind of art, you you get out of it maybe what you bring to it, what you put into it, and I feel like this book really demands uh, your attention. Mm -hmm. And I think the more I 
charted things out and I looked for connections that maybe were there or maybe weren't, I got more out of it than if I was trying to just sort of read through it like a yeah. a straight novel. And so maybe that's why I didn't like it. I was like kind of resentful that it was making me do all this work. <laughs> uh, when, you know, previous to this book, I had just read two Michael Connolly books, <laughs> uh, which are straight ahead police procedurals as you can want. And then this thing came along. And now since I've read two more Michael Connolly, so this was like, you know, like right in the middle of like, all I want to do is follow a detective around Los Angeles solving things right yeah. now. I don't yeah. need Nicole Krauss to get into my head. This is not yeah. a formulaic yeah. uh, no. novel. It's not, yeah. it's not, you yeah. know, although I do will say something just kind of interesting is that uh, you, you guys know I like to go on Google uh, mm-hmm. uh, Street View to, to look at things as I'm yeah. reading and I do it all the time with Michael Connolly books. So I, there was one <laughs> section, though, uh, you know, when the, uh, I think it was the um, uh, Lottie Berg and her husband, the mm-hmm. section where they're in, in London and mm-hmm. they talk about Hampstead Heath, Hampstead yeah. Heath and, and Highgate Cemetery. And well, I, I was on Google Street View looking around and you know how it leads from one thing to another to another mm-hmm. i ended up at george michael's house <laughs> and it was delightful That's crazy. yeah i just I, I saw it there i, I you know I, I, there it was and it's just a regular well i had a, house, a weird thing come up that i'll i'll talk about more with later but just in terms of like things that lead to other things and so i'll talk about sure. that in terms of another book later maybe we should bring in some reader comments for this uh, lighten it up a bit. One of, one of the questions, <laughs> or maybe not, I don't know. One of the questions we asked was, uh, do you have a favorite piece of furniture and what does it mean to you? And was it an heirloom? So Skipping Stone Press responded on Instagram and said, I inherited my grandmother's antique wooden writing desk, which stands prominently in our living room. So another desk, another writing desk. Are we doing ours too? Yeah, we can do ours too. So I, I do like my, I, my first response was I don't really have a favorite piece of furniture, but then I kind of remembered that I do because we just set up in our living room, this old wood couch thing that it wasn't really an heirloom. I think, I think it was made by a friend of my parents for my parents, but it has two huge wood pieces that are arms and then huge wood beam that goes across the, to hold up the back and the front. And, um, when I was little, we just had plywood on it and it was in our basement and there was like a futon mattress on it. And it was like just this huge kind of daybag comfy thing, but it was also very badly treated by us. So there's like marks from where we would be doing crafts on the car, on the couch or like, and I think at some point somebody took like a screwdriver and was just like, <laughs> whatever, because like, who cares? Like it was, it was kind of, it's a weird creaky old thing, but we found it and my husband put on new like actual straps, upholstery straps for the bottom and we got like a little mattress for it. So it's super comfortable. And I like that it has these old like water rings from where we would balance a cup on the, the side of the thing. So, yeah. And so will you let Meredith take her screwdriver to it? Or? Well, it's, it's not going to show up anymore than what's already there. It's not going to do any damage, but I kind of like, like when things are worn and yeah. have that character yeah. and that history. So I was trying to think about furniture and this just came to me now in terms of maybe not holding on, but letting go. Mm-hmm. Um, when my mom passed away, we, me and my sister inherited this old like China cabinet that belonged to my grandmother and maybe her, my grandmother's mother, but we, we weren't really sure. And I didn't really want it. And, um, but I knew that it was like, my mom always thought it was important and it was always a fixture in my grandma's place. So my sister was like, I don't know if I want it. And she waffled on it and she doesn't live in Winnipeg. 
So I was like, I'll hold on to it for like a year for you. And um, so it like kind of sat in the corner of my apartment and it was just like, it was kind of like a wait for that mm-hmm. year. It was like this big ominous thing that I didn't really have room for. Mm-hmm. And my sister like would like waffle on it. Like one week she'd be like, yeah, I'm going to try and arrange and have someone to pick it up. And then the other week she'd be like, no, that fell through. I don't know mm-hmm. if I really want it. And then I guess, I don't know, last year we, she was like, no, you know what? I don't want it. And uh, she had come to visit me. And so I was at work and my sister was at home and like, she just arranged to have it taken away to give it to some charity. And I was like, came home and it wasn't, oh, this is like so refreshing to Uh, not have this. I have had an experience like that in our house growing up. We had a huge old piano that was one of the only furniture that my mom had from her dad. And uh, it had been in a basement that was flooded. It was out permanently out of tune. Its key, keys were cracked, and we would kind of, we would play it, right? But it didn't sound very good. Yeah. And it was just big and dark and kind of like they were talking about the desk. Yeah, it that just sort of like was grotesque. always there. Yeah, like a and, yeah. fly trap. Yeah. At one yeah. point, yeah. Yeah. and not always yeah. a good associations with it. So when she was finally able to part with it, and I think it's being turned into um, it's being turned into another piece of smaller furniture, but. Um, like that was a really big piece to take up a lot of space mm-hmm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. So that feeling of relief. Yeah. Well, and that so that makes me also think about like these pe- these pieces of furniture as inheritance, mm-hmm. but also the desk representing sort of that emotional inheritance and it, that we pass down it represents to our a person children or a story and or yeah, a value and how sometimes giving that away or being free of it mm-hmm. is refreshing and (laughs) yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. like we had this old spinning wheel from my dad's family in germany and um it didn't really work at all but it was just sort of always in our living room and when my parents moved to bc their moving truck caught on fire and everything was burned including the spinning wheel um (laughs) and like the big dining room table where we had all of our you know family dinners um the wedding dress was burned and i mean so that's that was really sad that all those things but it's almost now become this story like we'll talk about well whatever happened to blah 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 oh burned in the fire in the truck. burned in the fire that's now part of our inherited Family memory history. <laughs> and history wow. yeah 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 so i mean it's sad but it's stuff it's on the stuff. other hand right yeah. like yeah. yeah do you have any furniture you want to talk I was, about yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was trying to think like I, I i think you know uh a couple of years ago our house was broken into and a bunch of stuff was stolen. And at that point, like it was a very upsetting and very kind of difficult thing to go through. But I, I wasn't really tied to anything. Like I, I missed the TV, not because I had an emotional <laughs> attachment to the TV, but because I just kind of missed watching TV. And, and, and so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really, I don't really have an emotion. I mean, I like my bed, I guess, because I can go and lie down in it. And, uh, but I don't, I don't think I have a connection to things but sentimentally. But it, it's the function and not the form. I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think if I could just live in a place that has a bunch of, you know, Ikea furniture uh, that I just bought last week, I would probably be just as happy than if I was around a bunch of like mahogany 400-year-old <laughs> stuff. I, I don't know. That probably means that I don't have much depth. But uh, <laughs> no. I think that's probably the, the reality of as far as I go with furniture. 
So at the end, you know, at the end of this book, when it turned out that uh, Vice couldn't get the desk, I was like, well, it's probably good. But then he went on and killed himself. So I thought, well, maybe it wasn't the best spoilers for those who didn't make it that far. <laughs> That's all I have about furniture. How about you, Dennis? Do you have any furniture-related stories? No, I'm very much a functional person. I had a chair and a coffee table that are probably the ugliest things you've ever seen, <laughs> but I got them for free and they were comfortable, uh, or the chair was comfortable, the coffee table was just, you know, I don't sit on it very often. Yeah, no, furniture is furniture. <laughs> One thing that Erica mentioned at the beginning of this book, or in her synopsis, was that the author, uh, was it Erica who mentioned this? Maybe it was Kirsten, that the author felt that there was hope to come from. It was Kirsten. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. Uh, from this book, which I thought was interesting because... Well, from her writing, that's from how she... Her, yeah, yeah, from her yeah, writing, which yeah. I'm, a, I'm taking this book yes, as, yes, an, as an extension of her writing. But so with books like this, like the, the sadder uh, book, I usually draw a lot of hope out of these books. Uh, and, and I usually really like books like this. And, and I don't know that I really liked this book. Uh, like it was good writing, etc. But uh, I didn't draw any hope from any of the situations. And I... I trying to figure out why that is but i don't know if anyone else found it hopeful uh or or felt any like bright shining light from the stories that were told if if anything i sort of i responded to the very sort of human interactions that she was talking about the 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 relationships and the dysfunction in in the relationships and how you you try things and they don't work and and you look for meaning and you can't find it or you attribute meaning so all of that kind of stuff i was like kind of nodding my head while i was reading but it, none of it was hopeful <laughs> I, 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 I at the end i sort of got i was thinking like well what's the point what's the point of all this what's the point of the last two weeks of me reading this uh aside from being able to talk about it with you guys uh, that's how I, I don't know. So what you're saying is this table right now and, and the readers listening in are, are the light at the end of the, yeah, of the tunnel. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think so. Well, I, I don't know about hope exactly, but this resonated with me for just where I'm at right now. And in terms of um, sort of living in a little bit of doubt and uncertainty and and just knowing that, I mean, that's life too. Mm. And that's how it all works and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And, and so I just could see myself in a lot of the characters in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In terms of just, maybe I'm just more in a darker place right now than I. I, well, it's interesting you should say that. I think one of the things that I think maybe when I'm looking at, at sadder, more depressing books is I'm often looking at situations that I haven't been in. And I feel like maybe more of the situations in the book I could relate to more. Like, so for example, when uh, Isabel is with Yoav and she like really wants to meet his dad and 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 get that sort of relationship going or to, to meet him. And he's like, no, you don't want to do that. Like I, I've, been in a relationship where I met the person's father and they like just hated me like from the get-go and like it was like whoa (laughs) and it it was kind of it reminded me of that scenario where it Mm -hmm. was like yeah I'm being judged and I will continue to be judged whenever I'm in your presence kind of thing Mm -hmm. so well and I didn't actually see I wouldn't have described this book as a sad depressing book either yeah that like there are There are, like, the the relationship of um, Lottie and Arthur, 
like even though he didn't know everything about her, I yeah. mean, they had what looked to me like kind of a mm-hmm. lovely relationship. And there were a lot of these women that were just really strong women and doing things for themselves. And yeah. um, and then the, I guess the men trying to understand them. Well, and I don't know. Yeah, you No, know, I, I agree. Like it, when Erica was, talking about uh from the book jacket it being a terrible secret what arthur discovered about lottie i was like it was it i like i I don't know that it was that terrible a secret i I almost feel like i didn't write that part (laughs) (laughs) oh no no i know i'm not i'm not looking at you for that i'm looking no it's true it was more but it was i mean it was terrible in terms of like it being a, a huge emotional part of her story and that was like, the sadness like bad, that yeah that like, kept her. Like for me, like I read the word like the the term terrible not necessarily as in being something really really bad. Like terribly happy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like like terrible that for Lottie or terrible for Arthur. Like I well, don't giving up a child wasn't that what what we're talking yeah. about? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So that's a terrible thing. Hmm. And also just bonus points for you guys for figuring out that that guy's name was Arthur. I know. Um, that I was never, one of those ones right did. at the very, very end. I'm did, like, somebody it? said Arthur. Okay, and I was like, right, and I, I wrote like, it down yeah. and I circled it. I've just got Lottie's husband written down all over the place. <laughs> yeah. I never picked up. So uh, good work on that. Well, and I think for him, what was terrible was to realize that she gave up the baby by placing an ad and just sort of handed the baby over, you know, that seemed to be something that really kind of shook him. He had already known about the baby already. Yeah. I think Um, the reason, um, like we were talking about hope and this book, and I think that the thing about this book is to me, at least it seems like the part of getting better, that is the first part, which is really coming face to face with what you are feeling or what you went through. And I think like some of these characters, we're, we're seeing them when they are finally coming face to face with whatever legacy has been handed down to them or the repercussions of their own decisions or whatever it is. And so the hope might be in that now they've done this work, you know, and mm. they've they understand their own insides better than they did. And but that, I didn't finish the book, so I don't yeah. know how. And that ends. emotional inheritance might be passed down now, yes. right? Yeah. So I don't. Which, yes, I think might be true for a lot of them. But that makes me think of Aaron's story and his son, Dovik. And you watch Aaron, like, come to terms with the relationship for his son or with his son and, and, and go through, like, that whole history in his head and him being, like, ready to sit down at the table that morning and, and talk with his son. And then his son died. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Which was sad. Well, and he's hit by the car. Does yeah. he die? Does he die? Oh, right. The father is coming. Yeah, he might Because not. then Nadia t- is t- talking to him. Yeah. Because, yeah. In my mind, he died. <laughs> <laughs> he just rid him off. Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> but I liked what you said, Erica, about maybe if they've worked through this stuff, then that's the hope. Because like, I don't think it's any coincidence that that section of the story, Lottie and Arthur, mm-hmm. it was called Swimming Holes. Yeah. And it starts with her always diving down into the darkness by herself and he would stand by the shore and then she would come up and so it was like she had the secret world that he was okay with being in her life but he wasn't fully in her life they had this kind of understanding and then at the end he was in that swimming hole he he followed it all the way to the family that adopted mm-hmm. her son and then mm-hmm. talked to the the mom and and so it was yeah yeah i kind of think like okay yeah mm-hmm. there's hope for him at least the nameless um, Arthur. <laughs> the name. Yeah, like I feel like we could talk about each one of the characters like in, sure. in depth. 
you know. Did we have any favorite? Mm-hmm. I like I liked Arthur. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I liked how he always like I mean, and maybe he shouldn't have as much as he did, but he like he loved his wife, but he's like, I'm gonna let her do her thing. Yeah. You know, like there's parts that I have no that have nothing to do with me. I'm just gonna whatever. I guess he's respect that. Kind of the husband that Nadia never had. Yeah. In in a way. Mm-hmm. Because her husband would start off by doing things like he'd give her time when he came home to get used to him being there before he came into the room and stuff. But then he got tired. Yeah, but which, I don't know, which kind of makes me sad because then you see Nadia reflecting on her life and and being like regretting maybe. Have I made a mistake? Have Have I made made a a terrible mistake? Yeah, yeah, by the choices that I made. But yeah. yeah. Mm I know, man. In a 50-year-old woman, <laughs> you know, reflecting back. <laughs> but it's not like you never see the 50-year-old couple being all like, why am I still with you? What life could I have had if I didn't tie myself to you? So, Did you have any favorite stories? Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I hated them all equally. <laughs> I mean... No, I mean, I, I think I think the whole Arthur Lottie story, uh, I, I enjoyed being in their world, uh, you know, and of course, you know, the sadness of when she starts you know, coming ill with uh, dementia or Alzheimer's or what, and that, yeah, you know, that whole that whole thing was all very, very well done. You know, but no, I don't think I liked it. So. Mm-hmm. That's okay. <laughs> that is okay. <laughs> You be you, Trevor. Yeah. <laughs> we say that in our in the book club at Fort Gary is you don't have to have finished the book yeah. and you don't have to have liked the book. No, yeah. like, not at all. I'll tell you one character I didn't totally like fine. was Ooh. the guy who kept talking about his son. Uh, oh, do- Dove, like his the father. Yeah. Like Aaron. The, Aaron. 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 Yeah. See, I didn't yeah. get his name. <laughs> yeah. uh, I just thought like this guy is a grade A jerk. Mm-hmm. And... I don't you care bet. how much you talk to me next to me on, sitting on the bus. You're still a jerk. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to be on your side. Yeah, yeah. I could, I, I, he didn't win me over ever. He kind, yeah. he kind of won me over oh, by the yeah. end when he like when he like starts reading his son's story about the shark and the people mm-hmm. putting their emotions on the shark and watching him get invested in that story and like. But then he has questions like, "Well, how does the tank get, get clean?" <laughs> and you know, and all this stuff like you know, which it, it yeah. reminds me a little bit like even the Royal Tenenbaums when uh, when Royal was critiquing Margot's uh, plays, like, "Well, that wasn't a very good play with the talking animals or whatever." You know, she's yeah. like twelve or something. But, yeah, yeah. Hmm. But I mean, he was never able to actually say that to Dove. And, no. and I feel like that was also another theme that kind of went through every single relationship was that mm-hmm. things were held back and mm-hmm. things weren't shared and there were silences and it was like, well, I'll just leave, give their, mm-hmm. give them their space. And so these are the repercussions about but that, I guess. There's that hope as you brought into me. He's still in the hospital, the son's still in the hospital yes. and the father is on his way. That's so right. hopefully... Hopefully they can have that that conversation. The other thing that bugged me about that story was the the desk never appears in that one. Does it? I, except no. for like Nadia. Well, Nadia. Nadia but yeah. Then like the, yeah. The which is interesting. Which is interesting because the son's a writer right. or had that writing and aspect. And it's set and, in Israel. Yeah. Like that part is in Jerusalem. Yeah. So there were other connections, right. just not the te- the desk. I, I, I like to see that although, desk appear though. Although he had sent back his story to be locked or put into his desk and not looked at. But it was a desk, a not the Again, desk. Again, that's sort of like Nicole Krause says, there's a connection, but not quite kind <laughs> yeah. of situation. You know? Yeah. And I was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Again, her... Trevor just really wants to... He wants to tie it all up. I do. I do. Yeah. 
You know, Harry Bosch always solves things at the end of a Michael Connelly novel. I'm just saying. Oh, uh, what did what did everyone think of the uh, Leah and Yoav story? The the brother and sister. I didn't like it. <laughs> I, mean, I was highly amused that their reaction to being accused of having an incestuous relationship was to play up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought that was hilarious that other people would leave them alone. Yeah, which um, is what they wanted. That was, yeah. yeah, that was great. Yeah. Great fun. Uh, I, I think it was like my favorite of of the storylines is is watching the brother and sister relationship together and just watching them have that weird the, that weird inner world of the, of themselves and and uh, Isabel being from the outside uh, looking in. But one of the, one of the do we all have siblings here? You mm-hmm. have siblings. You have Trevor. You yep, have siblings. One one of the questions we asked was, were you the favorite child? Because uh, Leah in the book asks about it or knows that she's the favorite child and it, and puts it as having a special burden. So I wonder if ever, if everyone was the special child or or the favorite child or <laughs> if they knew who the favorite child was in their sibling dynamic. Do we want to touch this <laughs> in recording? Is this too? Ha- is this too? <laughs> I mean, I like. I'm not going to touch that with a ten foot pole, but. Okay. What I am going to say is that um, I'm the middle of three girls. Yeah. And what I what I felt was the effect of birth order mm-hmm. in terms of how milestones are treated by the family or all kinds of other things like that, which is only natural. And we're, we're, we're three or four years apart. So that's, you know, that's quite a gap between mm-hmm. things. So, But that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, I'm one of four girls. And I felt like my parents were just super aware of treating everyone equally. Mm-hmm. But I was their favorite. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a, a brother that's three years younger than me, yeah. and again, kind of like with your parents, like my my mom uh, was always like would go out of her way to make sure. Well, if she did this thing for me, mm-hmm. then she'd do it for my brother, or vice versa. And and she even talked about this one quotation once with uh, you know Jimmy Carter uh, had a famous kind of. Uh, embarrassing brother billy carter <laughs> who was always getting into trouble and stuff and one day i guess a reporter asked jimmy carter's mom after something happened in the white house oh you must be proud of your son right. and she said which one oh. and she always kind of thought of that so i think maybe <laughs> i might be the billy carter <laughs> in, 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 in our family so, uh, well, it's it's because this is something my sister and i have talked about uh in in depth and we we both agree that I was the favorite child. Like, even though if you like were to ask my mom, she'd say, I love you both equally. And like, you could tell she like tried to to balance um, between the two of us. And I don't know if it like comes down to birth order or like attitude or like personality. similar personality. Yeah. Like I know I'm, I'm a pretty big sci-fi fantasy nerd. And that was something that I shared with my mom that my sister was who's the way more outdoorsy type, didn't share. Or she was more rebellious than I was. I was the one who stuck to my books and didn't sneak out of the house at night and, <laughs> and stuff like that. So, And what did the mother say? I was just looking for the quote with the whole uh, Yuri and Dove um, storyline. The mom was afraid to die and leave Dove alone with his father because she hated that relationship. And mm-hmm. he always knew that Dove was her favorite. Mm-hmm. But and she was afraid to die because she didn't want. To, and then what happened? She did die. She did mm-hmm. die. <laughs> and Leah knew that she was the father's favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that's the other thing is like it's is sometimes or maybe even often in family like the favorite child would be the favorite child of one parent, not necessarily both. Yeah, 
I only had one parent. <laughs> I had 100% of the favoritedness. I'm still not touching it. <laughs> <laughs> we also asked about the fork going on the left or the right side. Right when side. You, when you, right side. Because hmm? that's the hand that I hold the red fork in. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the proper way to do it. I don't care. Uh, well, I'm just saying. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying you're a, wrong. I don't run I, a proper house. I'm, 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 we swear in there. It's, it's a mess. <laughs> Dogs and cats living There's together. Maybe we <laughs> on the right. Yep. Yes. I'm. I'm actually trying to agree with you. I totally hold my. Where's fork the? Uh, in my right where's hand. the knife go? On the left. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I guess it depends. What hands do you guys eat with your utensils? Both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally Kirsten like, no just eats with her hands. She just put a hand on her I, plate. Motion. I've heard motion. just recently that apparently, if you're right-handed, you're supposed to hold the fork in your left hand when you're cutting meat, but you're supposed to switch over. Yes. I've never that's, done that. That's really? Funny. I've never done that. I've, I've done everything with my left hand. Well, are you left-handed? Fork, fork related. So are you? Are you left-handed? Fork left hand. <laughs> knife right hand. Knife right hand. Fork left hand. Uh, cutting, and then why would I transfer? I've already Actually, got the fork in there. I just eat it. So well, that's I what I know. heard was proper. Yeah, that's, really? that's what I heard was proper. Now so, this be, so you're not supposed to be switching back no. and forth. I thought you were supposed unseemly. to. Someone told me that I was doing it wrong. <laughs> Are you left-handed, though? I'm right-handed. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, so I do that awkward thing where I'll put, I'll cut with my knife with my right hand, and then I'll have to switch my fork into my oh, right See, hand. I just oh. cut with my but left hand. Often I'll just cut with my fork, too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and and, and what did... Um, We've all eaten together. I've never noticed this. <laughs> because it's not a it big deal anymore. It's I, not I, I, like I remains of the, the day. Time. It doesn't matter. You guys, the simplest way is to cut everything with your fork. Yes. Yeah. That's what I do. Absolutely. I, I almost never touch the knife. If there's a knife present, I just then, take the, ni- the fork and then I yeah. cut, including those, steak. Those yeah. tough cuts of steak. And then, yeah. and then you don't need to wash well, the knife. Well, sometimes I'm lazy and I just fork the whole steak. <laughs> fork the steak. Like, like it's a popsicle like on it's a steak. <laughs> I, I have a, I have a follow up question, which yeah. is related to this. Uh, pancakes. Yeah. Uh, do yeah. you guys cut them all ahead of time? No. No. And then eat them, or do yep. you just cut as you go? Cut as you go. I cut like a bunch as I go, but if you cut it all right away, it gets cold too fast. A bunch as you go, though. So you're halfway in between. Yeah. What do so you I'll do, do like half the pancake. So I'd that I can not, eat uninterrupted for a while. I'd rather not then, say what I do. I just wanted to know what you guys do. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, now you have to tell us. Well, uh, so pancake out for breakfast. <laughs> so we can watch Trevor. I'll tell you what I do. I think I do it a normal way, which is I cut as I go. Yeah. But I've seen some people cut the entire thing up. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, which is like a lot of work. But then I'm, I'm kind of envious because I'm like, look at that guy. He's got them all cut. He can just chew. He just and e- chew. eat them without stopping. Yep. So anyway, I don't know. That's made me think of when we're talking about knives and forks. I was just wondering. <laughs> no, that's a good question. Maybe it says something about a person's personality as well. I have one more pancake-related question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this goes back to Michael Connolly. Uh, Harry Bosch, the detective, he likes to put syrup on his plate first and then the pan- pancakes on top. Mm, and weird. I've never seen that. I don't no. think no one ever does that in real life. I think that's just some weird fictional I mean, somebody somewhere, character. probably. I mean, there's like matter? seven like, million people in the world. I feel like I most often eat pancakes at restaurants. So, like, can you imagine yeah. being there's like, no can way. you give me a separate? Yeah, plate? yeah exactly. You're not going. To, I mean, the whole thing of pouring the syrup over that stack. Beautiful, right? <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah. Anyway, I just, so I just throwing that out. So there. wait, hold on. Do you pour the syrup before you cut the pancakes? Yes. Uh, yes. That's crazy. What? what? <laughs> Because then you only have syrup over certain parts of the pancake. If you pour it on after oh, you no. cut the pieces, then it soaks in the middle. Yeah. Oh, no. 
Yeah. Well, well, I, like I like the, the sausages. It's too syrupy yes, if it's that. like completely saturated. Well, I'm not talking about completely saturated. I'm talking about an even distribution of syrup. <laughs> the problem here is that you're using syrup, which is terrible. <laughs> what do you use, Dennis? You, you take some... Okay. Here's the best way to eat pancakes. And if you haven't done this, you really need to try this. You place a single pancake on your plate, butter, brown sugar, layer another pancake on top of it, repeat until you've got as big a stack of pancakes as you want. The butter and the brown sugar mix together into this delicious substance, which is fantastic. And then you start eating. No syrup. No. Because you got the sugar. I hate syrup. Oh, wow. <laughs> but you got the sugar. You can use white sugar, too, but brown sugar is much better. better. Yeah. Yeah. Much got better, yeah. the molasses in there. I'm going to try that. I, I, mm-hmm. I hate too. molasses. So. But isn't that what's in brown sugar? I don't know. If it is, it's the one uh, well, thing I, I like about it, but I, I don't like molasses. I think that's molasses. what makes the brown sugar brown. I thought. Or maybe it's just no, like no. one of the substitutes for brown sugar. Sugar is brown, sugar-ish. and they refine it to make it white. Oh, okay. Oh, but is there like, like there's raw sugar, different levels is, of brown sugar, right? There's like there's yellow and yeah. I mean, I feel like we've all... I feel like we've gotten way off track because I, I was actually just even That's thinking about like where did this question even come from in the book? <laughs> yeah, forks and we, knives. Forks and knives. <laughs> yeah, but no, 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 no. I know oh, where. Oh, where? Isabel, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was Isabel who's uh, at the dinner table and she's talking about utensils. Okay, because I saw the question. I I didn't want to ask where it came from because I thought I'm gonna look dumb. Or wasn't it? No, so I just, I went with it. Who was it who visited the person that looked like Himmler? Was that Izzy? Okay, yeah. yes. yes. And then, yeah, yeah. Yes. and yes. he That's was annoyed was. or like shocked. Yeah. That old French guy. That's, yeah. Yeah. And he was That's, shocked that it was put on the wrong, wrong side. side. And then he just changed Change it, it and then he was okay again yeah but that was a whole weird thing that whole too. scene reminded me of like a nightmare yeah, yeah. I mean, you know like the yeah. Of weird dreams you have and then that little kid shows up in the kitchen yeah. And, oh yeah and, you know how much like the whole so thing so many like, things oh, she's gonna wake up and she's back in london like the whole thing creeped yeah. me out kind of wake yeah. up tied up in a cellar or something. and that's another reason why i didn't like this book. <laughs> <laughs> what no cellars <laughs> the promised like anyway anyway You've always been able to find good resources for your kids' school projects in person at Winnipeg Public Library branches, and you can also find some great new resources through our collection of databases. For instance, check out Explora Canada for Kids. Explora contains complete articles from dozens of the most popular elementary school magazines. All complete articles are assigned reading level indicators, aka lexiles, and many articles are available in color PDF. You'll also find easy-to-read encyclopedia entries written specifically for kids, and more than one million images of photos, maps, and flags. To use this database, go to our website, winnipeg.ca library, and click on the Databases button on the main page. From there, scroll down to Explora Canada for Kids and click Entering Your Library Card Information When Prompted. Well, since Trevor doesn't like this book, uh, we can segue into our most awkwardly worded segment. Can you tell me a book you would also like? And I'm very curious to see what Trevor came up for this one. Well, I'm happy to go first, I, although I, I'm preempting Erica's tradition of going first. But Eric, uh, I can see Erica yeah. like just like. Well, I'll be quick. I'll be quick. The one thing, I, <laughs> one fine. main thing I took away from this book was that it was a bunch of dysfunctional relationships. 
Uh, and so I read a book last summer called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And it talks about people have different love languages. And if you don't know what your partner or your child or your friend or your neighbor's love language is, you're going to be in a whole world of trouble. So this book to me was a whole bunch of people speaking the wrong love language. <laughs> so just to quickly summarize, there's five love languages according to this guy. Positive affirmation is the first one. So if you're the type of person that likes to be told oh, I really like that thing you did, or that was really nice of you, then that's your primary love language. There's also uh, touching, where you just like to have the physical contact of being cuddled or have your hand held, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there could be other types of touching as well. But, um, <laughs> uh, and then quality time. If that's your main thing, it's just, just spending time together and uh, just doing something together with the other person. If that's the thing you like, then there's acts of service. If you really just like you know, you come home and someone's, you know, uh, clean up the kitchen. Uh, they don't say, you know, I love you, but they'll, but they do that. If that's, if that really, re you respond to that, then that's, that's your primary love language. Or the last one is gifts. Yeah, it doesn't have to be expensive gifts, but if you just enjoy, you know, someone coming back saying, oh, I was out and I saw this and I thought of you and I got it. And, and so that's in a nutshell, the five love languages. And, and Gary Chapman's thesis is that we all have varieties. Uh, we're, we're all mixtures and complex people, but we usually have one or two of these that speak to us more than others. And it's okay to be in a relationship with somebody who doesn't speak those. But as long as you're aware that that's what you're, uh, the other person is into and you're able to be aware of that and respond to that, then things will go well. So... The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. I really wish all, one of these characters uh, read that. All yeah, these characters really. had, had that book and maybe things would turn out differently. Yeah. That's my recommendation. It's really funny because um, some of these are like some people have these really, really strongly. Like I have a, an aunt who is constantly doing that, the acts of service thing. Like she's constantly like baking and making food for people because this is how she communicates her love. Like you mm. can tell. Right. But right. if you weren't able to tell that, you'd be like, like, why won't she just have a conversation with me? Yeah. Or like, you I know, I want to hang out with her. For I just want to hang out with you. Yeah. But you know, she's making like muffin, yeah. after, muffin tray after muffin tray. It's like, this is how she shows yeah. that. So, yeah, so I mean, it's like anything. It's probably not right. But it's, it's, an, it's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting kind it's of framework right. to think of things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I kind of like it. Consider that people might be mm -hmm. showing these things in different ways. Just being mindful yeah. of what people are into. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Sure. So mine was, I'm trying to think of the best way to, to do to do this. So it's the associations thing. So I was trying to, to read this book. And like I said, I, I couldn't read it all in a row. I couldn't sink into it the way I often can with books. And so I was wanting to read before bed. And on my, my uh, bookshelf in my room, are just a bunch of books that I haven't read yet uh, because they were gifts or whatever. So I pulled out Everything is Illuminated by uh, Jonathan Safran Foer. Oh. And I started to read it and it's really funny. And it's, but it's kind of about the same kind of things. It's, it's about Jewish people and about going back to um, try to find like hints about your past and, and reconstruct family history and stuff like that. So I was enjoying this book, that book very much. And then, um, and I was kind of considering it as a, uh, uh, like a read alike as a, another book that you might also like. So I, I looked it up a little bit and, uh, they were married. Yeah. Which I didn't know. Whoa, Nicole Krauss and Jonathan Krauss. Safran Foer were married until just a, a few years ago. So that blew my mind. Um, <laughs> I didn't so bring I had, it up like, in the bio because I had also read that she didn't like to always sort of talk about that. Well, no. That they were, yeah. Cause she's mm. a writer in her own right. And she did. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there are I mean, lots of I kind of feel like there's no way that I could have 
known that when I picked it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's possible that in the deep recesses of my mind at some point I had associated the two. I don't know. But anyway, um, I think it would be a good read alike for this one. Mm-hmm. And I haven't finished that one either because I accidentally read another book. But um, that wasn't this. That wasn't the book that I accidentally read instead of this one. I accidentally read another one instead of these two. Anyway. I'm going to have to make a chart. So, but... <laughs> But Where's my yarn? <laughs> um, I'm confident that it's good because I read Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close a while ago. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, he's, it's good. Like, I'm fairly confident in making that recommendation for uh, Everything is Illuminated by Jonathan Safran Foer. My book you might like to read, if you liked this one, is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Called Time to Read. <laughs> we talk about Still this Still not book. clear on the concept. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Nadia at, at, you know, a certain point is like, what if I've been wrong, um, about choices that she's made in the life, um, that she has in choosing her profession or over her relationships. And it, that sort of got me thinking and reflecting. And, uh, I did an after degree in art history back in the day. And, uh, so I sort of stumbled onto this podcast called the Great Women Artists podcast by Katie Hessel, who is an art historian and a curator, um, with a goal, uh, to readdress the gender imbalance in the art world, trying to bring women back of all backgrounds, um, into the canon of art history. So she interviews other women, artists, writers, historians, um, curators about female artists, or a female artist that means the most to them. So I just finished listening to one on Frida Kahlo, which was super, super interesting. There was a great one about 93-year-old Betty Saar, who is an African-American legend in contemporary art. Uh, whose work rejects white feminism and reclaims the black female body. There's also one about uh, an artist called Unskilled Worker. I had never heard of her, uh, London-based, self-taught. So I just feel like I'm sort of going back like 25 years to my 25-year-old self and kind of loving being exposed to this again. So it's a really, really excellent podcast. And there's also an accompanying, it was first an Instagram account, actually. So it's awesome to look at the Instagram account as well. So that's Great Women Artists Podcast by Katie Hessel. So for my read-alike, I thought I'd talk a little bit about how we came to pick this book, which was everyone said, Alan, you should pick this book because this is your last book for the podcast before I leave. But it also so happened that we were on a huge timeline crunch for making the newsletter and promoting this. So I like really had a few hours to really make my final decision. So I went the read, the rever- I guess the reverse read-alike route. Hmm. Um, and one of my biggest book recommendations that I recommend to people all the time is Atonement by Ian McEwan. And so I was looking for read-alikes for Atonement. Oh, no. That's one of my least favorite books. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so I wasn't even going to tell this part, but so I've been, since we reread Oryx and Crake, which was like my supposed very favorite mm. book of all time, I've like, and reread it. And I was like, maybe that was like 20s Alan's favorite book of all time. And maybe mm. it's time to rethink what 30s Alan's favorite book of all time. And I, I think I want to put Atonement in the running for that. Nice. So, uh, so I want to reread Atonement, but anyways, I didn't want to reread it on the podcast because I wanted to read something I'd never read. So I was looking for read-alikes, and uh, Great House was a read-alike, and it was 
also in that list as a read alike was uh, it was like if you like Atonement and Revolutionary Road, which are both books I really like, you'll like Great House. So that's that's kind of how mm-hmm. I came onto this one. Hmm. Hmm. All that to say, it's your last episode. It's my last. <laughs> <laughs> it's my last episode. Yes. Yeah. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. (laughs) Nerd words for word nerds, the part of each show uh, where our hosts boil down their most prevalent thoughts of the past month into one word. (coughs) That's just me choking, not (laughs) not welling up. Uh, (laughs) I thought that was your nerd word. (laughs) (coughs) Uh, Who wants to start us off? I will then. I'm going to just jump right in. Uh, I read an interview with uh, Krauss where she talks about an epiphany she had at age 13 when she read 100 Years of Solitude at school. And the teacher told her that it was a book about nostalgia. And she thought, that is the word for the thing, this thing that I feel, Mm. um, which is sort of odd for a (laughs) 13-year-old. So nostalgia coined in the 18th century. It was used to describe more um, a severe homesickness. Merriam-Webster defines it as, number one, a state of being homesick. Two, a wistful or excessively sentimental yearning for a return to or of some past period or irrecoverable condition. So... This is my nerd word, nostalgia. And I hope that we won't have too much nostalgia <laughs> for, for, for Alan, for but also that yeah. Alan doesn't have too much nostalgia for us and have extreme homesickness, but yeah. he can always come back. He'll be fine. <laughs> mm? And you guys will be fine. Yeah. We'll all be fine. Mm-hmm. We will all be fine. We'll have we'll have a picture up with a candle in front of it uh, for the first next, next episode, baby. Do I, I can I can go oh, next one. You okay with that? Okay. Well, I, I stuck with the whole great house theme, and I wanted to think of an actual great house. So my uh, nerd word is Glensheen, and you know sometimes when houses are really big and fancy, they're given a name. Uh, so Glensheen is the name of a mansion just north of Duluth, Minnesota, owned by a family called the Condon family. It's a 39-room mansion built between 1905-1908, and you can have tours of the place. But what's interesting about it as well is that in 1977, there were murders in this house. It's a murder house. It's a murder house. And you won't believe the murder weapon was a candlestick. <gasps> but what's great, what's great is that... In the drawing room. <laughs> <laughs> and so the first time Professor I visited Plum. this house with, my, uh, with Marla, Marla had heard about the murders and she kept asking the tour guide, is this the room where the... <laughs> and the tour guide was, oh, well, you know, we don't like to talk about that. And, and, and she's like, I heard there was blood in the stairs. Oh, no, well. And so I went, I went on the website today and I think there, there's something in, in the FAQ that they must have added just after uh, Marla's visit because it says... <laughs> Is information given about the murder during the tour? And it says, Tours at the historic Glensheen estate strive to focus on life in the early 20th century, the era during which the estate was constructed. The unfortunate 1977 event is but a tiny slice of the rich history of the Condon family and their beloved Duluth home. Please understand that we do not highlight the tragedy because we choose not to exploit the event or allow it to overshadow the Condon family legacy. If you would like to learn more about it, three books have been published on the subject and more information is available on the internet. So, uh, Glenshin is a great house. If you ever happen to be in Duluth, Minnesota, it's worth checking out. Yeah, Glenshin. My word has nothing to do with this book. It has to do with the book that I read instead of this book, 
which was Evolving Brains, Emerging Gods, Early Humans, and the Origins of Religion by E. Fuller Tory. Oh, yeah, you um, did say you were reading for pleasure. So, yeah. So, <laughs> well, and it's, well, I mean, it's super readable, and especially if you have any kind of interest in uh, in evolution or in the psychology of humans, really. But um, at the, the in the introduction, he uses the word ABC Darian, ABC Darian. And I thought that's a wicked word. So the context is this. I'm quoting now. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam teach that there is one God, but most religions claim there are many. Indeed, there is an ABC Darian abundance of them. And then he goes on to list 26 gods from across time and place in alphabetical order. So... The definition of ABC Darian is uh, one who learns the rudiments of something, such as the alphabet, so it comes from ABCD, or it is an adjective of or relating to the alphabet or alphabetically arranged. And yeah, so the history of ABC Darian is as simple as ABC, literally. The term's late Latin ancestor, ABC Darius, which means of the alphabet, was created as a combination of the letters A, B, C, and D, plus the suffix uh, Arius. And that's from Merriam-Webster. So that's my new favorite word. There you go. Nice. So uh, my nerd word is departure. uh, And I've (laughs) derived this from Roger's International Thesaurus. I'm departing, starting off, if you will, embarking on a new journey, taking leave of time to read. And this is my valedictory address. Please don't mistake this as a want to get away, move out or march off that I'm trying to beat it, split or scram. I'm just at a point in my life where I need to get rolling and sally forth to new days and new opportunities. I've got the green light and I've got to go. This isn't a sinking ship. You, dear readers, won't be left high and dry. Time to read won't vanish, disappear, or bow out. Kirsten and Erica, Dennis and Trevor, all have yet to retire. Nor do I suspect that they will hasten off or hurry away anytime soon. So before I pull up the stakes and break camp, I want to say goodbye. You, dear readers, have run off and taken flight with my heart. You have allowed me to embark on this journey for 25 glorious episodes. I feel like I'm leaving home, defecting from this house which we all know as the Carol Shields Auditorium, that I'm losing this election in which I voted with my feet. But it's too late. I've already raised the blue Peter. So before I peter out, farewell, so long, see ya, au revoir, adios, hasta la vista, baby. And as Edward Murrow would say, good night and good luck. <laughs> so, yes, my last episode. If, if anyone's wondering where I'm going, I'm, I'm moving on to Red River College, where I'll be working for the library there. And unfortunately, we have to sign off for this month. So it goes. Thank you so much, dear readers, for tuning into this, the 25th episode of the Time to Read podcast. In February, join us as as they read The Break, a novel by the Governor General's Literary Award winner, Katharina Vermet. Get in on the conversation by finding us on Facebook or emailing us at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. We would love it if you hit subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast service. We'd love it even more if you were to give us a five-star rating. And until next time, make sure you find Time to Read. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Time to Read podcast. We were talking about Great House by Nicole Krauss. Time to Read is a production of the Winnipeg Public Library. Our panel today included Alan Chorney, Erica Ball, Dennis Penner, Kirsten Werman, and Trevor Lockhart. You can be a part of our show too. Email us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca with suggestions for books that you'd like us to read and discuss, and comments and questions about the book we're reading for our next show. Visit us on the web at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca check out our show notes with links to some of the things we talked about today and take part in a discussion about the books we're reading. 
You can also join our Facebook group and follow Winnipeg Public Library on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Next month, we're reading The Break by Katerina Vermette. We're looking forward to hearing what you think about it. use of a thesaurus in quite a while. <laughs>